0: Hey Joe. Hey man. Back again. It, you know this reading. Well, I, I think this is the best reading of the bunch so far. Really. But it's also. I think you got to say some of the most challenging. Mm. Like if I if I just told you, hey, I'm gonna have the students read an encyclopedia entry this week. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you might think, they might think oh goody it's going to be just a summary of stuff but but the let me just say it at the top the Stanford Encyclopedia is a great resource. Uh, but,
1: You're talking about the online Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, so good. I over the years I've referred to it many times when I wanted to uh, explore something new or get a deeper take on something. It is an amazing resource. It's, very high quality. It's
0: really great. And when I have students at the law school who are writing papers on something. And they need kind of to use a new analytical tool or master a new area of law. It's, you know, it's not a legal encyclopedia, but there's such overlap between, as there is between so many things. You know, if there was, if there were an online economic encyclopedia, it would also, I'm sure, be a great resource. But this is, this covers so much, right? I mean,
1: it's a go-to reference resource for sure. And so if for nothing else uh ha- having the students in the class realize if they didn't already know it that this resource exists and how good it is wow what a you've done a good thing
0: but it's not um it's it's not super easy reading i mean it's True. it's it's challenging and Well it's
1: the, it's the real McCoy. i mean it's a genu it's a genuine article written by experts in the field by experts so, in the field right yeah that's it, why it's good
0: not just not just editors who go and talk to experts in the field and try to provide a capsule summary this is an attempt to convey, at least hints of the state of the art mm-hmm. in the field, with links to other readings. Right. And and the other thing I would say at the top is, in a way, this may feel like a kind of it's not exactly back to the future, but it feels like a return in a way to the readings that we did before about what what is good.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. The that utilitarian deontology virtue ethics distinction that we've already done. Right. Are we coming back to it now? Well, in a way, we are because those ideas are everywhere mm-hmm. but we're focusing in in this reading and in this episode on well now that we've talked a lot about law and economics as a way to kind of analyze law for its efficacy to analyze what we want to do with law to uh, as a as a kind of a, a technology for looking at effects and measuring them maybe it's good now to step back again and said what and ask ourselves but well, now cut- let's step back and look at, look, at the, look at distribution. Let's look at, okay, so we already knew, we talked about it already, that, for example, when we talked about the Coase theorem, that the one thing that we knew is that if the rational actor apl- model applied, if there were no transaction costs, and if property rights were clearly established, then the parties will rearrange entitlements to get to an efficient result. But we observed there, as elsewhere, that there would be a distributive consequence right. of what the law was. That we're going to make one party relatively richer in entitlements and one party poorer by signing the property right to one or the other. Well, now let's have a good look at that.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, one uh, term that that students may have already heard in another setting or might hear in another setting, uh, you've used the Word distribution, you could use the adjective distributive. Yeah. Right. We're getting to the distributive question. The the word that you'll commonly hear used to refer to the other conversation we've already had is allocative or allocation. Yeah. So you can from from which is about moving from, from point one to point two, and you're asking questions about is this improving the way resources are allocated? within the system. I have a starting point. I have an ending point. I'm talking about allocation questions or allocative efficiency um, in, in the move. But what about at point one, it's not moving. It's just point one. Is that distributively speaking, right? What is there to say about that? If anything, point two, you could ask the question again right. uh, or any other point. Uh, so there's this sort of moving and then there's the, okay, what are the states of affairs at some points of rest?
0: Yeah. So at point one, there are people who are relatively well off on any particular resource that you might be looking at and people who are poorer off. At state two, it may be different. And we might ask different questions like, is state one a state that we're happy with? And then we might say, regardless of whether we're happy with state one or state two, are we happy with the move from state one to state two? Right. And that's, in a way, that's kind of what the takings cases that we'll talk about a little bit later uh, measure, right? I think the other thing to say up front before we get into these particular ways of of analyzing, because the way that you teed it up, I think, is great, Joe, right? I mean, we have to, you know, look at whether this distribution is an improvement or is like you use that language, which implies we have a way to measure whether we think something is good, right? Whether it's a good state or whether it's a good change of states in Mm -hmm. distribution of something, whether it's, you know, money and taxation or some other resource. So we're going to have to have some theory of the good with respect to these distributions. And that's why we'll be returning to some of the stuff we talked about earlier. But in a way, the students have been, you know, we, we all have. We've all been preparing to answer these questions our entire lives, right? Uh, we, we are very familiar with the issue of what's fair, what's mine, what's yours, how we're going to share, how all this is moved around. Like, we've been making judgments about this since we were toddlers. One thing I wanted to observe up front is that you can never get away from this question. So, so it's never good enough to say, well, we're going to be concerned with efficiency here and we're just not going to make a distributive choice. So this is an efficient allocation because, oh, I don't know, we, we, ha- we made an initial assignment of entitlements and the parties rearranged and we think there are low transaction costs. And so this is efficient and we've not made a distributive choice, right? It's just parties on their own right. are doing things. But, but that is a distributive choice, indeed, is it not?
1: And, and there are, um, I think it's a great point because um, I I agree with you, <laughs> Reason enough to think it's a great point. No, I, I jest. Um, <laughs> I do agree with you, but 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 I think you will often hear people say, "Yeah, that's a," and it's a slightly more sophisticated version of what you just said. Because uh, what you just said was, was sort of an <laughs> was sort of an error, right? That's a, um, you know, I'm not making a distributive choice. I'm making it. I'm having the question about allocation, right? Well, that is a distributive, exactly. fair enough. Well, so you so, hear some people say again, slightly improved version. Um, That's, that's about distribution. And I'm not talking about that right now. Right. Suggesting that at some point they'd be willing to. Right. right? Which turns out often not to be the case. Right. So there are a lot of people very concerned about, very happy to have very extensive conversations about allocative efficiency questions who never get around and aren't ever going to get around to tackling the distributive questions. So the distributive questions are there. They, I think they're ever present they're inescapable, that doesn't mean everyone wants to join issue on those questions because so a lot of people right. don't. So if we, so if someone
0: says, I'm talking about healthcare costs right now, and I'm talking about, um, you know, being able to choose your doctor. And so I'm just talking about these aspects of the healthcare system. I'm not talking about whether, you know, the, the fairness or the morality of overall access to the healthcare system. That's the kind of critique you're making, right? That in fact, those two are kind of conjoined and you can never get away from that allocative decision. It's never enough to say, right. uh, "Well, I've chosen an efficient
1: way to deliver healthcare to whomever can afford it." Right? <laughs> right. Without ever talking about who can afford it. So yeah. no, and and I would agree. I am sympathetic to the idea that it is, of course, uh, easier to have converse given that we are linear creatures existing in time. Right. It's of course you can only talk about a few things at a time. So I understand the impulse to say, "I'll get to that." right let me do this first and then i can do that mm-hmm. yeah, well okay but we got to get to that
0: well let's get to that so what the experts can tell us right are, is the kind of effect of our policies the experts can tell us you know if you enact this tax code here is how the um the public resources will be re- redistributed here is how private resources will be re- redistributed this is the number of people who will be at the poverty line. This is the number of people who will be better off. The experts can help us predict those things, and they do a better job at predicting those things than just you or I would do on the back of an envelope or something, Joe. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, the Congressional Budget Office, other—we're yeah, not professionally right? trained right. economists. So, so yeah. exactly. So, experts can really help us predict the effects of policies, although you know there are limits to our ability to predict for sure. sure. The one thing that the experts cannot do that cannot cannot calculate, right? is the morality of a particular distribution. So the experts can tell us that if we enact a particular kind of tax regime, that it will tend to make uh, the top 1% a lot better off and won't have any effect on the bottom 20%, right? They, they could tell us that sort of thing, you know, uh, uh, you know, how good they are at it. You know, that's the kind of thing we'd look back and we'd see if, uh, the history of forecasting and what the model is. We'd make, but that's a kind of expert evaluation, right? Some people are better at predicting the future than others because they are more familiar with the tools that seem to do a better job doing that. But the one thing that doesn't do and shouldn't be thought to do just because someone puts on a white lab coat or something like that, right, is to tell you whether that that state of affairs, the 1% being better off and the bottom 20% being no worse off, is that good or not. Right? That judgment about goodness isn't is a moral or ethical judgment as to which people might have different theories and approaches. And it's true that by thinking about those things harder and 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 becoming expert in those things, you might have a better way of talking about them and a richer imagination about the different ways people might respond to particular allocations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's not, you know, the ability to predict the future doesn't help you to necessarily, other than by increasing your imaginative capacity and seeing things from others' points of view, The it doesn't necessarily help you judge these different allocations on a moral ground. And that's what these different theories do, right? They help us see the see allocations from different points of view okay so imagine some really important resource maybe it's money maybe it's healthcare. um you know money can be rep- re- can represent a lot of different kinds of goods but sure. some important good like food water something that maybe everybody needs uh why not just use what is called strict egalitarianism why not adopt that theory right and egalitarian right has that that begin that the beginning of that word is equal, really. Right. So it's, yeah. it's 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 a theory of strict equality that the equal worth of each person implies an equal entitlement to equal levels of benefits and burdens. It's a similar kind of almost deontology that that you that you see in 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 Kant. Right. That like everyone is an end in themselves. Right. right? It, and,
1: it definitely has that flavor. And the, the, the very idea of the categorical
0: then, imperative, right, that you universalize is, is that like no one person is, is fundamentally more important as a moral matter than any other person.
1: And so it might raise the question whether if you permit a non-egalitarian state of affairs to exist, are you not subordinating some people, namely those with less, to be means to the end of those with more? Are you permitting those with more to treat others as means to ends, namely the end of their having more? (laughs) Right. Um, It raises that question. The
0: extreme version of is if you enslave a few people to serve the benefit of others, right, that's an extreme difference in access to resources. Right. And even if you could somehow show that that made that that made everybody better off, right, in in access to particular material goods. Right. You might object to the fact to the very fact of the inequality. Right It's even if their the material access to goods was better because of that regime, the material inequality you would judge morally problematic, precisely because, right the the people being enslaved are
1: being used to enrich the
0: people who are richer.
1: yeah, and the and the in a sense, you've you just made an interesting kind of historical legal point about the fact that self-ownership is an egalitarian bedrock below which our constitution doesn't permit us to fall, right. Uh, that that self ownership is a is a sort of bare minimum, uh, because the Thirteenth Amendment says slavery shall not exist. It's
0: worth pointing out that's one of the only. It's not, I think, the only, but it's one of the only provisions in the Constitution that that is not a secondary rule but applies to everyone everywhere. Like it, it's illegal for you to own slaves, right? <laughs> right, be, because of the Thirteenth Amendment.
1: Yeah. And, and the reason why, for a non-lawyer, the reason why that sounds bigger than they might realize, right, because we're used to constitutional provisions being directed at state power. Yeah. So like we talked about the Eighth Amendment, right, that's a limit on what states can do. Right. It's a limit on governments can yeah. do, right? Um, the 13th Amendment's prohibition, as you just pointed out, is not merely a limit on what governments could do, although it is that, uh, but it's also a limit on what private persons can do, mm-hmm. right? You can't own them. You also can't sell, you can't sell yourself into being one. Right. No matter how much I want, might want to, ins- if this isn't the case, folks, but if it were the case <laughs> that I wanted to sell myself into bondage, into slavery, right. I'm not permitted to do it here. Right. Uh, this is a legal prohibition on the nature of the kind of distribution we want to exist. Right. And it's a distribution that uh, says self ownership is the bare minimum. That below which people will not be permitted to fall, at least not in that sense.
0: And Joe is—you are nobody's subordinate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just not true, folks.
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know. You just just try to make Joe your subordinate and watch. You know, (laughs) I can get fired. It's not easy. No, you you can. But I'm just saying that you dispositionally. Ah, well, dispositionally, that maybe you 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 rage against the dying of the the light of freedom. Okay, so there's some problems with this, though. If I, I've stated it very simply, this kind of strict egalitarian view. That yep. like, look, look, I mean, if everybody's morally equal, what, what reason is there? What warrant is there for saying that someone should have more goods of a particular kind than another person? Like, what reason is there for that? And if you conclude, well, there isn't one, then the fact that somebody has more water than someone else seems to violate that principle. But we have a little problem here, because what does it mean to have the same level of goods? Does it mean that everybody has the same number of apples and everyone has the same number of oranges? Everyone has the same number of tablet computers and everyone has the same shirts. And suddenly it starts to sound like some kind of like statist hell, doesn't it, where everybody is issued the same <laughs> right. the, exactly well, the same
1: goods. Quite apart from statism, um it, it it raises the question, does everyone like apples equally? Because if I don't, and I'm and I'm required to have the same number, um, then I, I actually don't have the same thing at a, from a certain point of view. Do you like apples? Um, I, I happen to, it depends on the variety, but yeah. um, And I, I don't enjoy eating them by biting into them. I would cut, cut them into pieces and eat the pieces. Of course you would. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like a little apple. With you it. came that, you saw that coming, I right? Did, I
0: did, I did. I like an apple with a little bit of uh, honey roasted peanut butter. Oh, you know, if you've been exercising or something, you get a little bit of that. that's boy, I'm telling you, that's a that's a shot in the arm. Nice. And so,
1: so if I if I if you had a bunch of apples, Joe, and I had a bunch of grapefruit, do you like grapefruit? Uh, it, it depends. The grapefruit can be a nice, it's got kind of a bitter taste to it, so it's not always the most refreshing <laughs> thing. Right. The right answer is it's, the grapefruit horrible. But, oh, okay. Yeah, you that's know, okay, but that's
0: that's my preference, right? So,
1: so, say, so it, we, if we all had to have a sack of grapefruits, we, even if we didn't like them. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the person who has them and likes them is in a different state than the person who is forced to have them and doesn't like them. Right. Right? And you can make this on the same egalitarian
0: grounds in a way, right? This so, has
1: nothing to do with statism. Right. Which was the first... You're, you're, you're right. Funny, you're right. but actually not terribly germane <laughs> <Well>, But <laughs> germane. I'm, I'm imagining a, a world
0: where everyone is forced to have exactly the same. Right?
1: And, and you made an assumption about the kind of state apparatus it might take right. to bring that state of affairs into existence. And, and By the that... way, shout back to... <laughs> Uh, Ron Coase problem of social cost yeah. in a world without information costs, yeah. right? In a world with no transaction costs. Did you just call him Ron or you want to? Ron Coase. Okay, you there, yeah. uh, so, in a world with no transaction costs, things will get traded to their best place, speaking very in a very compressed way. Um, a funny thing about that uh, supposition um, is in a world with no transaction costs, there can also be complete state control. The one thing that makes state control not great is because it has a a great amount of transaction costs. But if you posit at the start that transaction costs are always zero, uh, then completely centralized and perfect state control is also entirely imaginable.
0: Hmm. I would think you might describe that as infinite transaction cost if there's a perfect prohibition on exchange.
1: No, my my point is that if transaction costs don't exist, yeah, this, the one of the principal barriers to there being perfect state control oh. vanishes.
0: Right, you're thinking omniscient dictator, benevolent dictator, someone, someone who knows everybody's preferences. And yeah, because reallocate. by hypothesis, right, 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 right. It,
1: getting information and, and having transactions doesn't cost anything. Okay. Well,
0: I just wanted to make the simple point that if that if we had if we started out with each of us had equal bags of grapefruit, equal bags of apples, and they're right. being replenished at a current rate, and and I've got my honey roasted peanut butter, and of course you do too, because we're all equal, right? And I want, I want some slices of apple. Of course, I'll just bite it right off the apple, Joe. I'll I'll bite it right off the apple and get a spoonful of that honey roasted peanut butter and I'll eat it like seriatim like that. I got, I gotcha. And, and you've got, and then I've also got this useless bag of grapefruit and I'm like, oh, I'm running low on apples. I might go up to you, Joe, and say, hey, I really want, how about I give you three grapefruit for one of your apples? That would make me happier, right? Yeah. This would be in the language we've already used, a Pareto efficient transaction. Yes, because you would prefer the three grapefruit to the one apple. I would prefer the one apple to the three grapefruit, and in a very so, so, so you might say strict egalitarianism works against Pareto efficiency. But another way of seeing it is, it, depending on how happy we are with our state of affairs, maybe you just barely prefer the uh, the three grapefruit to the one apple, and I really prefer the difference. So if I really think that bag of grapefruit is totally useless to me, I'm kind of not on your same level of happiness, right? I'm not really equal to you. Right. Because I've got a bunch of useless stuff and you've got a bunch of stuff you're kind of happy with. Right. So there seems to be almost a self-defeating air to strict egalitarianism, right? That how do you know? What does it mean for people to be equal? Does it mean they're equally happy or they have equal numbers of goods? Imp-
1: and, it would be important to define it.
0: Um, so, so maybe what you might do instead is say, well, okay, so people prefer different things. What we really want to give people is an equal entitlement to goods generally. And so we use an index like money. If everyone has equal money, then they can get what they want. But no one person has any more control over goods than anyone else. So one problem with using money as an index is that, yeah, you could, you could, everyone has equal, you know, possibilities at the same time. But once you start, once you hit the play button on society and people start making exchanges, yeah. very soon people will have, some people will have less money than other people just as a virtue of making exchanges and sometimes getting on the wrong end, end of an exchange, mm-hmm. making a bad deal. Yep. And then are you going to continue to equalize? And if you continue to equalize, then what are you just replenishing the money chips every month? And anyway, there could be problems with that, right? Another kind of problem is that, so s- suppose that I can't walk, okay? That, okay. And and in order to get around and participate in the modern economy, I, I need a wheelchair, or I need other kinds of accommodations. And some of those I have to have around with me all the time, right? So I have to acquire them. If, Joe, you're able-bodied and, um, and, and, I'm, and I need a wheelchair to do the same things, like I, I need to spend some resources just to get to the same level of mobility that you have. And mm-hmm. if mobility is important in society, right. right, then in order to participate fully and equally, I need more resources. And so having equal money really puts me at a disadvantage.
1: Given that some of it is... Uh, foreordained to be put into the task of bringing your capacity closer to a sort of average capacity, mm-hmm. and so before when we were talking about uh, you know giving everyone equal equal goods uh, runs into a a fact that people have different preferences right um, giving people equal monetary resources uh, runs into a challenge of people having different capacities right. uh, and different affordances just by happenstance, by birth, accidents of birth.
0: And that doesn't even ask, like, what, what do you do with people who have just different tastes? Like, what about the person who has expensive tastes and needs a yacht to be as happy as someone who would be right just as happy with and the tent we could, right
1: i mean in the limit we could treat that as as one of those accidents of birth if we if we i mean the, the the rational actor model tends to assume that preferences are interior to the person and in the system yeah right so you could say for the to to entertain that hypothesis well those are just the tastes you come to the table with yeah right like like do your legs work do your arms work do your eyes work do your ears work Et cetera. do you need a yacht
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, it's all. You could treat if it all if you're same. treating it
1: all as just what right. what's in the mix, bat the bag mix of of what you're bringing to the table,
0: right? Right. My own rough and ready theory would treat those things differently. Okay, but, but you have to struggle with the fact that you know those.
1: You have to explain why you're you have to treating explain why them differently. Why you're
0: treating what, them differently. What, yeah, yeah. Should we go to the next theory? Because if that's what you'd like well, to do, unless you have something profound at this point, no. Oh, yeah, I, I doubt that. You've got something profound in there. <laughs> it's
1: uh, not true. <laughs>
0: So, so the minute you realize that this seems a little bit, well, I don't know if you want to say it, it it is naive because there's a lot to this kind of strain of strict egalitarianism. One of the great things about strict egalitarianism as a, just a way of thinking is it reminds you that inequalities need to be justified, right?
1: Yes. And I think that's a very, it, it, that's really important to appreciate that there's a, that the the pull of fairness expressed as, a kind of equality in some sense right it's the departure from the equality that looks like it's in need of explanation right from that point of view and i think f- oftentimes that's one of the most important things to see is what does this frame suggest is the thing that needs to be explained mm-hmm. that frame also probably leaves some things like looking like they are less in need of explanation and that can be the next important step is to try to tr- find a different point of view Where that flips a little bit. Right. And what does it tell you? What light does it shed on your understanding um, that you now you can see the ways in which different things look as if they're in need of explanation? This is especially important for lawyers to be able to do because – Oftentimes, a decision maker is sort of, that's the very thing that separates the decision maker from a decision in your favor, (laughs) is that they look, it seems to them as if the thing you want is the thing that needs to be explained and justified. Right. When, if you can get them to see the flip side of it, it turns out the other person's issue is the thing that would need to be explained or justified, right? So this is a really good set of skills for people to have if they want to be lawyers.
0: You know, an observation I've been meaning to make—probably more suited for the other show we do—but I'm just going to say it now. Oh, Why not? That—that cool. that one way to recognize bias in yourself is to—is to ask yourself what kinds of things, what kinds of ideas expressed in the world am I willing just to retweet and parrot, mm-hmm. if you like? And what kinds of things do I read and say, "Huh, that needs more evidence," right? I mean, that—that that is that initial impulse toward saying immediately, "Yeah, that makes sense," or "Wait a minute, that." I'm gonna want to. I'm gonna Google to see if this is really true, right? And there's a little bit of that in what you just said, right? Mm -hmm. That that, for sure. That how much of this do I just assume? Like how much status quo do I think is just naturally okay? And and how and and when do I see a something as a departure that needs to be justified? And um, that's big. I think that's a big idea in law, but also just in like being an adult, right? And and understanding yourself better and understanding your own biases. Well, so Rawls with the theory of justice comes into this debate with a storm of an idea, I think. I mean, I just think a super, super interesting idea that is kind of still being teased out is, you know, it's imperfect at the moment that it's born, but it shows, like just like we were just saying about strict egalitarianism, right? It has some obvious problems, which we can talk about, but also captures something essential, right? Um, Many things that are essential. So the very first idea is that There are a lot of things in our society that we have a conviction really ought to be equally distributed. Like, these are things like a vote, right? A vote for president.
1: Yeah, once you get past a certain age.
0: Equal justice under the law. I mean, a lot of these kinds of ideas of equality that which we've had kind of baked into the Constitution and baked into our civic psyche. Right. These aren't always just wordplay. It's not, you know, it's not as though... Oh, everyone understands that inequality is not important, but we need to have we we need to pay lip service to equality. No, there's really some things where the where the the rhetoric of the Constitution and the legal conviction and the personal conviction for equality has real meaning, right? That yeah, that this that this law shouldn't treat this person any differently than this other person on the basis of these differences like this difference shouldn't matter
1: and if you could demonstrate in practice that that wasn't being achieved you would have demonstrated something a lot of people would care a great deal about and seek to change right that that it, our attachment to to the the equality achievement is real in a, in these different in different settings not in all settings and but, he
0: defines a category of these as things you might think of as civil liberties the kinds of liberties that that any that any adult should enjoy and at least, and some that some children should enjoy, but the, you know, the freedom from arbitrary arrest and seizure for, for one, like that's not something that some people should have and other people should just have to kind of suck it up and accept constant police, right? you know, intervention. And that's something a lot of societies struggle with. And, and Rawls points out that that should be the kind of thing which is bo which is possible to deliver to everybody in equal measure and which mm-hmm. must be delivered to everyone in equal measure. But, you know, not everybody can be the president at the same time not everybody can be uh, the CEO of a corporation at the same time. And what about these Pareto exchanges that we've talked about that lead to, like, what if I'm, you know, I notice that, boy, it's not just me, but it's a bunch of people who loves putting, putting that honey roasted peanut butter on their apples, Joe. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to plant some apple trees. Like I'm going to serve this demand. A bunch of people are trading me stuff now because I've provided these apple trees. Like, should we say that there is no, I have no right to receive, like, whatever I get in exchange for those apples, I have to share with everybody equally, then, you know, what incentive would I have had to plant those apples, right? Plant those apple trees, not plant the apples. You know what I mean?
1: Well, I guess it would, well, yeah. I mean, that uh, that is an interesting question, although I would think the answer would turn in part on who, who, who counts as everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, these are pretty complicated questions. They get pretty tough pretty fast.
0: They do but i think what rawls is observing is that strict egalitarianism may go too far right in in the sense that if if i have no right to keep some of the profits for example right so there's some amount of of social and economic inequality which will develop in a system in which you give people kind of the freedom to exchange things right and And where we necessarily must have hierarchies to make decisions about the allocations of various social resources, right? There has to be someone who's in the Senate and there has to be somebody who's not, right? We need, there are all kinds of jobs that have to be done. Some people are going to invest in things which turn out to be really useful to people and other people aren't. But like, how do you get people to do that? So like Rawls is kind of grappling, I think, with a world of where we are comfortable talking about the need for incentives. Yes. Where there's, it's very difficult to imagine a non-statist, right, um, system where everybody has exactly the same resources, right? The, the thing that would be stopping me from trading uh, for your apples, giving you my grapefruit for your apples, right? A world where I can't do that is when where someone's telling me that we can't do that, otherwise we're going to, right? And so he's trying to explain, like, how is that? And he does that first, as I said, by saying, well, there are some things which aren't subject to that kind of critique. There are some things which really can be equal. And these are these kind of primary, what does he call them, primary goods or primary, uh, primary rights? So these are the, kind of the, the, the political liberties which we should all share in equally. But these, otherwise, these economic and social inequalities, those can be distributed unequally, but should be distributed so that they're a benefit to all. It's true that we all have equal moral worth. And when we tolerate inequalities, it should be to benefit all of us, all of us kind of morally relevant creatures at the same time. How do we do this? Well, the first is the first idea is that improvements caused by these inequalities, these inequalities in economic. So, if we're going to tolerate, for example, my having more money than you, Joe, maybe we should tolerate that. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we're going to tolerate that, it, it's it's precisely because we all benefit from my having a bit more money. Maybe it's because we've we've said, you know what, Christian has done something that is a good investment and. And rewarding him for that like encourages more of that, and yes, it means that he has a little bit more command over you know various goods than Joe does
1: but but society is lifted by that. this is the rising tide, lifts all boats yeah. kind of argument right and, and that's a, you might be especially willing to accept that in a circumstance where it looks as if uh, the opportunities that allowed you to do that are the are opportunities that are widely available because it feeds back into that notion of encouraging good things to occur uh, as a way to try to advance us down whatever the line that we're proceeding on so
0: um so, so if there's some inequality which makes us all more wealthy right if we tolerate a little bit of inequality we're all wealthier just think in terms of money right if we tolerate a little bit of wealth gap everybody has more money than if we enforced equal wealth on everyone okay so that's the kind of thing that rawl says maybe we can tolerate what we can't tolerate are inequalities in the first kind of entitlement. This is like arbitrary seizure and arrest, political rights, the ability to vote. Those sort of, you know, Even if we knew for sure that depriving a whole bunch of people of the vote would make everybody richer in terms of having more money, we shouldn't tolerate that. Right? So you can't trade off those first order values in order to achieve benefits in the second order of goods. That's a key normative moral position. right? How do we know what kinds of trade-offs are okay, taking out those primary goods. So how do we know when it would be okay to tolerate an inequality that generates some positive benefits of some kind? This is a key problem, right? So how do we know if a certain taxing regime is good or not, where that taxing regime would create would allow some inequalities to exist and maybe even exacerbate some, but provide incentives for various people to do various kinds of things? Like, how do you know if that's any good? Well, Rawls has this... Really, really great kind of thought experiment that he asks us to go through that he says will provide the answer. Now, the answer is contested, but the thought process is highly influential. So, you know this thought process, right, Joe? I do. So, what Rawls asks us to do is to close our eyes in a way, to go behind a veil of ignorance. And that veil of ignorance is his term. So, imagine that you are with your kind of compatriots and you're trying to adopt a system of rules and a system of taxation, various allocation rules. And imagine that what you suddenly don't know anymore is what position you'll occupy in society once those rules take effect. You don't know if you'll be rich or poor. You don't know if you'll be male or female. You don't know if you'll be straight or gay. You don't know if you'll have mental gifts or mental disabilities. You don't know if you'll be disabled physically or physically enabled and endowed. You, you right. just don't know. You don't know what race you'd be. Right. All kinds of things that you don't know. And so if that were the case, if you really didn't know whether you would be a winner or a loser under these various rules, because you know, once we've entertained this idea that we can impose inequalities in our allocations in order to help us all out, we know that every law that we pass will have some winners and losers. Hopefully we can create laws that have many more winners than losers. And in some
1: sense, even the losers win, right? Because they're better off maybe than if we hadn't had it at all. So yeah, they might have a different, they might have an unequal piece of a much bigger pie. Right. So issue is if you really don't know who you'll be,
0: what kind of rule would you choose? That's the basic exercise, right? And it provides a kind of criterion for evaluating goodness that, Rawls sees as key to delivering true justice in a society. Otherwise, you look at a particular allocation or a particular tax regime, and you're asking, okay, is this fair or not? And it's very hard to disentangle the fact, well, this would really cause me to pay a lot more, and you know what? I've worked my butt off for years and years and years, and I really, des- you know, I don't deserve this. What about all those freeloaders out there who aren't working or who aren't doing this, or what about these other people who lucked into this? And you're just thinking of all these circumstances, and you're, it's really hard to get away from your own life experience. And what the veil asks us to do is to go behind, is to forget about all that. Imagine we could forget it all. What would we do? What would we choose? And if we behind the veil would choose a particular allocative rule, and we were wise about it, right, then that is at least some information, or perhaps even conclusive, that that is a just allocation, and that is a just rule.
1: Now, I think it's hard to engage in this uh, process that he asks us to engage in. It's hard to do this thought experiment. A version of the thought experiment that, that might be easier uh, for people to do um, is to imagine themselves being different people, not imagining themselves mm-hmm. not being any particular person out of ignorance about like the veil is almost like you're the, this disembodied race <laughs> right who yeah. that doesn't have any characteristics yeah that's very, we're not like that we have characteristics, but we also have empathy right we have an ability to imagine what it's like to be other people, and so if you do a lot of uh, imaginative Empathetic projections and reconstructions of what, of what th- how things might play out, then you you might begin to approximate uh, that uh, sort of form formless, uh, bodyless, uh, character lacking wraith.
0: That's true. What one way that you can kind of approximate though this lack of self knowledge and become more wraith-like is to make law that won't apply until a well well distant future, right? Where you Ah, you won't be around, and if you are around, it'll be law for a world that'll be totally alien to you. That's a way of saying, you know, you, you know, you, people refer to these as kind of sunrise rules rather than sunset rules. right? So that's a way kind of procedurally to operationalize the veil. But even then, as you point out, like it's really hard, if you really are lacking in empathy, it's really hard not to imagine these future stock characters that are similar to you and your, right. you know, and the people that you don't respect and that you do respect, right? Yeah so even that can be a difficult enterprise because you can never get away from the that frame through which you see the world other than through this really through the intellectual enterprise of reminding yourself hey you know i myself am a problematic person in many ways, right? I, you know, other people have these feelings that I have and they have different life experiences and I have to try to get behind those, you know, I have to see things in different ways in order to be wise here, right? Yeah. Like, and, and I think what you were saying points out that, that even with these kinds of process type enhancements to the veil, like we're going to legislate for the future, you can never really get away. You can never really get away from the need to engage in that kind of empathy enhancing enterprise of.
1: Yeah, I would think, too, that it's why this like uh, this wouldn't really work for sociopaths (laughs) because they're going to be totally unmoved by the notion that, wow that would be that would be really hard on a lot of people if we did it that way. So, so, you
0: know, Rawls, yes. I mean, but Rawls's idea is that if you really could put someone behind the veil, imagine someone really could go behind the veil. Yeah. This is almost like, you know, the same way that we say, let's choose the rational actor model and then we can predict, because it's such a simple model, we can predict how people are going to behave yeah. and then we can choose and write an incentives and everything. Well, similar to that, imagine you put people behind the veil and if people are truly ignorant, right, and they are self-interested. So we make a similar kind of rational actor kind of move. Like, let's make people super simple. And if they're behind the veil and they have no knowledge about themselves and how they'll be advantaged, in in a way we can, like, now we can do their reasoning for them without becoming them, you know what I mean? So if they're behind the veil, Rawls says, I just reason it out what someone behind the veil would do, and I think that they would choose the rule which maximizes the benefits to the least well-off, because they would be worried that they would be the poorest of the poor, right? and they're going to want to choose the rule which maximizes the benefit to that group, right? They're they're never gonna make a trade off that makes the poorer the worse off in order to enhance the better off. Because they're worried they might be the poor, right? Sure. And so if you really could put that sociologist <laughs> the soci- And so if you really could put that sociopath behind the veil, maybe it would work for them. He or she might be the best at this. Like you know, ah, right, right? Yeah. But this is where Rawls has come in for some critique, one of several places where Rawls has come in for some critique. He assumes a kind of risk averseness, that like people will be really worried that they might be the least well-off and therefore would choose Rawls' maxi men principle, right? That, that you behind the veil, because you're so worried, would try to choose the rule that maximizes the, the benefit to, to you if you end up being unlucky and being the least well-off. Like, is that the case? Would people choose that if we really could put them behind the Rawlsian veil? And one critique here is that Rawls's thought experiment doesn't lead to Rawls's theory of justice. It doesn't yield up this principle of maximizing the benefit to the least well-off. What, what do you think? I without mean,
1: do, making some assumptions about the kinds of tastes people have at the outset anyway.
0: Right. In other words, the thought experiment doesn't, kind of like, you know, um, the critique of normative law and economics, right? So the, the thought experiment itself doesn't imply anything without additional assumptions right? Because rationality alone doesn't tell us how real human beings would respond behind the veil. And if that's what we care about, how real human beings would respond behind the veil, we need a more complicated model of human beings to make good predictions about how that would go. Right. What do do you think if you're behind the veil? Does that smaxie men sound like what you would do?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's why I tend to psychologize it in an, in a, in a sort of empathy based approach. In other words, you, I, I find it so hard to grok the notion of having absolutely no characteristics <laughs> that I that I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. in some basic, very very basic level,
0: I get this image of this formless homunculus kind of thing going on, right? <laughs> right. This... And
1: and and that's and maybe I'm maybe that's unfair because maybe that's not what he's saying. One needs to to try to imagine, right? For me, it's just easier to conceptualize if I think of it as a, a series of. Okay, well and and your framing is is in the same vein. It's like, okay, well, imagine I were a a person who had very few resources. Like it, it the veil gets pulled up and it turns out I'm a very impoverished person. Would I have wanted to make that even worse? No. Mm-hmm. Right? That yeah, that's into makes intuitive sense. Um so maybe going through a series of empathy thought experiments is sufficient. Right. To flesh out the contours of of the theory.
0: Well, so one one interesting thing about the theory, which distinguishes it from some other moral theories, is that it is a prediction about what people would choose in a particular state, which makes it possibly, possibly testable. In other words, we Mm. can try to put people in conditions which mirror the Rawlsian veil for particular kinds of decisions, and we can just ask them what they want. And there have been some experiments on this, and they seem to indicate, you know, again, we we need more, we need better, and you know, and I'm always cautious about how we use experiments and law, um, to, uh, to to make deductions, to make inferences about the way the human mind works. But putting that to one side, it seems like people generally have an intuitive idea of improving the average well-being. And again, I'm not sure if it's like average or median here. There's some complexities, but kind of improving people's Um, material state generally on an average basis combined with some kind of floor constraint. Meaning that so long as we protect the most vulnerable from the worst conditions and you try to, you know, people may have different ideas about what that floor should be, then what I'm going to try to do is to increase the kind of average prosperity of the people. And that's very different than Rawls's Maxi Men. But it's a different approach people, people might take behind the veil. And there's some experimental evidence that at least a lot of people take that approach. Interesting. Do you take that approach, Joe? I don't know. Yeah. See, that's, I don't know either. I mean, I, I'd want to, it's really hard to put yourself behind the veil, isn't it? You'd want to know, well, what kinds of questions am I answering here? What kinds of allocations am I being asked to think about? Should, should we think of all allocations the same way? Like I have a very different intuition about the allocation of television sets than I do medicines. mm right? Right. And water and food I think of differently than I think of cars, right? So, yeah, tough. If we push on this principle of equality a little bit more in a way that tries to grapple with the fact that it seems really hard to equalize everyone at the same time, there's another branch of egalitarianism called luck egalitarianism. Are you familiar with that, Joe?
1: I was less familiar with it before this reading. So
0: a couple of different kinds of egalitarianism, right, are equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. And this kind of strict egalitarianism that we talked about earlier is a kind of equality of outcome. Everybody needs the same stuff all the time, right? Whereas equality of opportunity says, you know what, you give people a chance and maybe they'll screw it up, maybe they'll do really well for themselves. So long as you kind of give people a chance to generate their own opportunities, that is a principle of justice that we should be able to get behind. One version of luck egalitarianism goes beyond just pure equality of opportunity in the way you might think of it and rules out discrimination based on various kinds of status traits, right? And embraces the idea that we're all born into what they call a natural lottery. Like some people are, some people have stronger backs. Some people are, score higher on a Q test. Some people are good with numbers. Some people are really good with words. Some people are very persuasive. Some people are charismatic. Some people are beautiful. Some people are not. Some people can jump really high. Some people can't.
1: Some people have good eyesight. Some people don't. That's true. Good hearing. Some people
0: don't. How those will translate into access to resources and status within a society really depends on what the society values. Right? So at a in a knowledge economy, having a few more IQ points, setting aside all the difficulties like you know what I mean. I'm just signaling setting aside the IQ, whether that says anything. But right. being good with numbers, being good with analytics, like that kind of thing may advantage you in an information society. Like having a strong back would have benefited you in an agrarian society. Sure, And being, being the smart guy, you know, may not have in the same way, right? So there's this kind of match between things that you luck into, you're just born with, and what a society needs. And a strong view of luck egalitarianism says, you know what, it, we shouldn't punish people for things that they can't control. People who aren't as smart in a society that rewards smarts, we're gonna have to give them more opportunity in a way in order to make them truly equal.
1: Does more really capture it? Yeah. Well well, what do you mean? Well it's it's a different it has to have a different texture. I mean just reminded of that old saying of, you know, the the rich like the poor are perfectly entitled to sleep (laughs) under a bridge. Right. Um it's it's not it's not just the number of opportunities or chances, it's the quality they have. They have to have the right character. Yes. Have the right uh, uh, features. Right. Because different people have different capabilities and capacities.
0: To equalize opportunity while recognizing a natural lottery means that you're going to have to provide some additional inputs to people whose luck has been not as good as others along socially relevant dimensions.
1: Yeah, which vary in time and place.
0: If you're a luck egalitarian in a society where a strong back generates lots of material opportunity, you're going to have to find ways to equalize the opportunity of people with less strong backs, either through finding them, you know, rewarding jobs that don't require a strong back by maybe giving them additional subsidies through taxation and redistribution, all kinds of different ways you might do this, or or prioritizing them for help from farm animals, whereas people with strong backs maybe don't need that. I I don't even know what that is, Joe, but you know what I mean, right? I do. one, One problem with that is that so, if we another theory that we see in this same section is about dessert, right, and and people should get what they deserve, right, and then we've seen this before when we talked about uh, um, retribution in class in the criminal context. But right. this idea of desert goes further in law, right? That this is and, and in and in moral theory that that there's a system which kind of disrupts a conception of dessert is going to create continuous social friction, right? If, if, if what law is constantly doing is disrupting our notion of what people deserve, people are going to... So even if you're consequentialist, people you're going to say, well, people are going to look at that eventually and say, wait a minute, this is, this is totally unfair, right? But if you push luck egalitarianism hard enough, you start to see, well, wait a minute, people's taste for work or laziness or ambition or lots of things that you would say are morally salient, those are a matter of luck too. Right. I mean, some people are just harder workers than others. And, you know, what if we find out like we study the brain and we study genetics and we find out just some people just are born wanting to be harder They're harder charging. They, they, you know, that's what kind of gets them going. They get an endorphin release from getting up at five in the morning and putting in eight hours of work before lunch and can't wait to get back to it. Right. And there are other people who want to stop and smell the roses and we can maybe even identify a biological basis for this. So this seems to be a problem, doesn't it?
1: Well, I mean, it's a f- it, problem. It's a fa- it might be a fact that you have to cope with socially.
0: You have to cope with it, but it may present a problem for kind of a, a, a an opportun- equality of opportunity type theory, right? That we have to e- equalize the opportunity of the less ambitious.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a challenge to figure out how you might implement it. Because, you know, Dworkin,
0: Ronald Dworkin, famous, we haven't talked about him in the class yet, but... Famous legal philosopher, he distinguished between ambition based and endowment based differences, right? And tried to say that there are some things that there's there some things which happen to you that are a matter of brute luck, and those should be equalized, right? And there are other things that happen to you, you know, benefits and burdens, because of your ambition, and those things we should allow to result in inequalities. And this is what I think. You know that uh, more science is going to put more and more pressure on.
1: Mm. Um, So, last
0: last thing I want to talk about. There are some other theories in there, and I'll get to these in class. But I want to talk about libertarianism for a moment, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: partly because a lot of the way that we've been talking about this and the way that I see the world, right, is that so many of our allocative decisions and there are rules for allowing people to transfer things like apples and grapefruits and is because these transfers and these mechanisms serve an end. Right? They serve the end of making us better off. Right, The reason that you want to allow, perhaps even encourage, transfers of, between you and me, Joe, of, of apples and grapefruit is because we'll be happier with those transfers. The libertarian view, as expressed in this section and as, um, and as elaborated by Robert Nozick, is that market distributions are not just a means to happiness or a means to utility, but are an end in themselves. An allocation of resources is not good or bad with market mechanisms as a means to achieve that good or bad allocation, but allocations are good or bad because they were allocated according to some market mechanisms. And this is the idea that if we freely exchange something, that exchange is good precisely because it was freely exchanged. It's not good or bad because of our happiness at the end of the exchange. Does that make sense? No. No, I'm not asking whether you agree with it. I'm I'm asking whether I explained it. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you could you could say no to that too. No, that, I mean that's a that's a perfectly fair summary. Uh, but <laughs> um, it's okay. You're not a libertarian, are you, Joe? No, uh, and and I'm and I don't even play one on TV.
0: <laughs> so Nozick's basic theory is that there is a just kind of acquisition initial acquisition so if i get i don't know if i acquire water that was once held in common or was held by nobody and i do it in the right way that that's just right and it's just because of the way that i acquire the thing right that i'm doing it to no one else's detriment and not hurting anybody else as i do it right then then that's good he also believes that any exchange is good so long as it's voluntary right so there's a notion of a good kind of exchange and then he says any allocation is good if it results from a series of good initial acquisitions and good exchanges. That's it. That's the criterion. The problem is, what happens if the way things are allocated now is a result of some voluntary exchanges, like the grapefruit apples thing, but some and some good initial acquisitions in the sense that someone went out and there was some place that nobody owned anything and nobody... It didn't affect anyone else, and they planted a farm, and they built something up. Like, some of that. But that some of it resulted from stealing, either from individuals or from, races, or, or from racial groups or from indigenous peoples. And some resulted from unfair exchanges. But that's like two or three transfers back. And we are now, you know, living with an, aqu- living with an allocation that is in part based on what he would consider good things and in part based on these things which he would consider not at all good. What do we do with that? So he has this principle of rectification, which requires the identification of past injustices and rectifying them. And so that's a further... So in a way, it's like a libertarian view of justice. Which requires things probably like slavery reparations and yeah. lots, of kind of ex- lots of moving around of entitlements to address the fact that we, are not, that we have not come up from a clean slate from the Garden of Eden to now
1: with nothing but voluntary exchanges. I guess, although a person could be forgiven for thinking it's just a big, giant shrug emoji. <laughs> because it, this is impossible. I mean, it's, well, yeah, it's just a huge, <laughs> you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I mean, it's the, it is the big problem, and it's not getting solved at all. The central defect is the thing that you're not really. Yeah, I can't really address that. What he's trying
0: to give effect to, and we'll we'll wind up here. There's obviously more to talk about, but Anna, I can't. I mean, wait to feel do free class, to but... edit
1: out any of those no, characterizations no, no, no. No, I just I, made if you
0: want like, to. But it. But I don't think anyone should be under the illusion that either of us has no opinions about these theories. I I certainly do, and I know and I know you do too. I I just want to emphasize that that this theory of libertarianism he has is not one of these like goofy it, it's not it's not a it it's not a totally like goofy theory that is just like the market is good kind of just pure kind of Ayn Rand, like, you know, I'm no one's slave, right? It is it is no. it, an elaborated theory about yes, it, where, where he realizes the problems and he tries to provide principles to answer those problems. Yes. And he's somewhat ambivalent about what it means for his evaluation of current market transactions, right? So he's like, yeah, there's, there's a problem here. And he doesn't yeah. pretend like there's not a problem there. But I think it's an attempt to try to give effect to the idea that a world where I am prevented for whatever reason, from saying, you know what, I'd rather have your apples, Joe, and you'd rather have my grapefruit, that the injury is not just in our failure to achieve a happy state, but that there's some happiness we get from that kind of free exchange, from that kind of authoring of our own commercial lives, right? Indeed. And and that is a, that's a brand, that's a a strand within libertarianism that I think is not just within libertarianism, right? I mean, I think we, we all value that freedom to kind of author our own lives. I think that where you're pushing back and where I would push back is that that's not the whole story, right? It's that, you know, my freedom to sleep under a bridge and to author my own life, right? right. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the full story of what it means for me to be happy within a society. Indeed. All right. So there's obviously a lot more to talk about here. There are many, many, many different ideas about what it means to, but, you know, if you think about this, these allocation theories and these theories of distributive justice, it's really just thinking hard about how do we live together? Mm. How do we live together when we aren't all in the same family, where we aren't naturally selfless, where we are going to act in in self-interested ways sometimes, in ways that are harmful to others? How do we make that work? And what is the right way to make that work? A theory of rightness here for that problem of living together. Mm. So this is really like, it's coming back again to the ultimate question, but I'm kind of glad we're doing it again in a way, this theory of what is good after we've looked at law and economics and we've looked analytically at how people can kind of grow the pie. Uh, I don't know though, so much more to talk about. And I look forward to talking about it with you in class.